This classic Encounters podcast is brought to you by Encounters North. To learn more about our podcast videos and projects and to support our work, please visit EncountersNorth.org. Hi, I'm Richard Nelson for Encounters, a program of observations, experiences, and reflections on the world around us. Well, if you took all the power and mystique of the high Arctic world and you shaped it into a single living voice, I think it might sound like this one in the background right now. That is two enormous polar bears challenging each other for access to food. There's a female with a single cub. She's a big, heavy-bodied animal. And she is having a bit of an altercation with another female who has two cubs. And it's the one with the two cubs. She's a bit darker colored than the other. And she's very, very aggressive. But the other one is certainly replying in kind, as you can hear. What power in those animals. <laughs> as they go nose to nose, they're reaching out their very long necks toward each other. Mouths open, chuffing, growling, hissing. Every year, as late fall sags away toward the cold and darkness of winter, polar bears leave their usual home out on the ice pack. And they come here to the remote shores of the Beaufort Sea. This is the coastal edge of the North Slope just outside the border of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Just a little bit off to my right here is the shore of the ocean. Covered with ice now, there's a sandbar out maybe a couple hundred yards, and beyond that is open ocean with big waves crashing in. There's quite a powerful storm, snow blowing along the ground. It looks like a blizzard, except no snow is falling from the sky. It's all just blowing along. An early winter world. White man, does it ever look like the Arctic. Also keeping company with these polar bears is a little group of glaucous gulls hanging out here on this very windy day. A lot of time sitting on the ground, but also rising up and drifting and sailing back and forth in the gale. Well, these bears come in in the fall and they wander the beaches. They're looking for the stranded carcasses of walruses, seals, and whales. And they also gather at the remains of bowhead whales that were taken by Inupiaq Eskimo subsistence hunters. And that's where these animals are right now, not far from a village on the north coast of Alaska. And I should tell you that this is a spot that can be reached by truck. And so I'm sitting in the lee of a truck, which is my safety, because you sure wouldn't want to be out in this spot without some place to get if a polar bear happened to get grumpy and make this kind of noise. Listen again. These bears are about 30 feet away from where I'm sitting right now, and they're utterly unconcerned about me, although one right now turns, gives me a long and thoughtful stare. And as I look into the eyes of that polar bear, it's sort of like a dream. It's hard to imagine that I'm actually here in this place, seeing these incredible animals. They're working on the bones of these whales, quite a pile of bones, the big long jaw bones, probably 15 or 20 feet long the spinal columns, various parts of the whales covered with 
blubber and sinew and gristle and some meat and they're tearing away at that. You can hear the sound intermittently of these bears sinking their teeth into the meat and gristle of these whales and pulling back, which one of the big females is doing right now. Also her two cubs right next to her. Occasionally you'll hear the cubs add a little growling voice. She is pulling back and heaving with the most extraordinary strength. Polar bears are huge animals. The males average close to a thousand pounds and sometimes up to 1600 pounds or more. So they're huge animals. They stand on their hind legs occasionally when they do that up to 10 feet tall, the big males. The females, like the two here right in front of me, are somewhat smaller, 400 to 700 pounds on average. These two are very big females. Their fur is creamy white. It blends in with the snow and ice. Actually in the distance I see two polar bears walking out there on the ice and they actually look darker than the ice. One of the females now looking right straight at me. Her cub too, the two of them side by side, peering at me. And you have to wonder what in the world are these great animals thinking. One of the most beautiful and formidable predatory animals, the polar bear. Immensely powerful bodies, sharp claws on their great splayed paws as they're clawing right now at the meat here. Long canines, I can see the canines as they bite away at the bones and meat. Sharp shearing teeth, great power in these bears. Perhaps above all else though, it's the polar bear's mind that allows these animals to live on the constantly moving, crushing, fracturing, perpetually frigid Arctic ice pack, which is right now out over the horizon, separated from the land by an expanse of water. We might imagine that the polar bear would have this frozen world entirely to itself, but that is not true. There are two great predators who have learned to subsist and survive on the ice-covered sea along Alaska's northern coast. One, of course, is the polar bear, like these five bears right here, the females and their cubs. The other is human. The Inupiaq and Yupik people, both of those names translate as the real people or the genuine people. Well, both the people and the polar bears are able to live here in the most challenging, most demanding environment on Earth, above all, by the exercise of pure genius. In the case of Inupiaq people, whose homeland is along this northernmost coast of Alaska, this genius includes the close and careful study of the polar bear over generation after generation, accumulating huge and sophisticated knowledge of these animals. Back in the 1960s, I spent a year in the Inupiaq village of Wainwright, recording their subsistence knowledge. I think it was the greatest and most unusual job anybody could ever have. I was sent there by the United States Air Force to gather information for Arctic survival manuals to be used by pilots who might make emergency landings or crash landings on the polar ice. It was the most important year of my life. I have to acknowledge my debt to the people of Wainwright for their teachings. I, of course, am only a beginning student. It would take a lifetime to master the encyclopedic knowledge of expert Inupiaq hunters. Well, one of the things that fascinated me most during that incredible year that I spent living in Wainwright was Inupiaq knowledge of the polar bear, the animal that has long been called Nanuk in their language. One way that Inupiaq people have studied polar bears is by following the tracks of these animals on winter ice and reading what they teach. Of course, every animal as it walks along is writing part of the story of its own life. For example, over years and generations, Inupiaq people have seen that many 
polar bears walk consistently toward the south at the beginning of winter. As the pack ice expands southward, the polar bear's world grows and they move along at the edge of that ice. Then in spring, the elders have learned over generations that the polar bears move back northward as the pack ice shrinks and melts away at its edges. Well, back when I lived in the village of Wainwright in the 1960s, in early December, a hunter invited me to join him going out on the ice looking for polar bears. We each had our own dog teams. We left before dawn. Of course, the sun never rises at that time of year, so there's only twilight even at midday. Not far out on the ice that day, we came across a polar bear's track. From the size, my friend estimated that animal was eight to nine feet long, big animal. He judged the time since the bear passed. How did he do that? He took off his glove first, and he pressed down in the little ridge between the polar bear's heel print or sole print and its toe prints. There's a little ridge of snow there. And he could tell from the hardness of the snow that had been many hours since that polar bear passed. If the snow was very soft, it would be extremely fresh because in the cold weather, snow hardens fairly quickly. And he told me that if there had been feathery crystals of frost in those tracks, they would just be too old to follow because it had been too much time since the bear passed. Well, those tracks were fairly fresh, he said, and the pattern of them showed that the animal was moving at a leisurely pace, and so we followed. And as we moved along, he'd stop occasionally, and he would note what that polar bear had done, where it licked snow to slake its thirst, where it had stopped to look around or sniff the air for scents, where it had hurried or where it slowed down. He could tell all those things by the pattern of the footprints. We followed it for miles. We were hoping that bear would stop to sleep, maybe in the lee of an ice ridge, as polar bears often do. In fact, our bears here, one of the females and her two cubs, have ambled off on the ice. Our other female has gone over into the lee of the whale bones, which is a fairly good-sized stack, and she has laid down. It's the most beautiful thing to see. She's facing downwind, her nose and muzzle laying right down on the snow. Now she moves it on top of her paw, and her little cub is snuggled up next to her with its chin laid right on her back. What a beautiful thing to see, as I see three other bears out there now on the ice. One of them, in fact, playfully rolling around on its back. Yesterday, a little cub polar bear managed to snatch up a gull here, a seagull, and immediately tore it apart, ran out on the ice, frolicking around with it, throwing it up in the air. Now this other polar bear, looks like a big male, has found the remains of that gull, the two wings and part of the body, and he's doing the same thing. He's actually throwing it up in the air right now, flicking it up in the air. He's right next to a pond in the middle of the ice, and believe it or not, even in the midst of this gale and blowing snow, that bear has jumped into the water, and it's now rolling back and forth, picks up that fragment of a seagull and throws it around in the water. Well, during that day, we followed the polar bear's tracks, hoping that it would do what these animals are doing, lay down in the lee of an ice ridge. We climbed ice piles along the way to search the area with binoculars. We looked both ahead along those tracks and behind where those tracks had come because it was possible that another polar bear, he explained, would be following this one's tracks. But during that day, a very, very long day out on the ice, we never did catch up with that polar bear, although we found several other sets of tracks. My companion explained to me that if a hunter spots a polar bear, he'll note its speed and direction. 
Of course, the hunter could chase straight after that bear if it was in the middle of a large expanse of flat ice, but usually it's impossible to catch a polar bear because the ice tends to be all thrown up into ridges and piles, and the bear is much faster than a human or a dog team or even a snow machine in modern times out there on the ice. So the hunter will often circle around downwind and get out ahead of the bear, interpreting its direction. Try to get in a place where he can wait and intercept that animal and take it if he's lucky. When Inupak hunters watch polar bears out there on the rough ice, they'll often see it vanish behind an ice pile or a ridge, then reappear, then vanish again. Again and again it'll do that. There's a special word in the Inupak language for that phenomena of vanishing and reappearing. The word is kivyakadidaktok. Inupak people actually have a very rich and elaborate vocabulary for many things related to sea ice, its movement, its thickness and age, all the conditions of cracking and opening. When I lived with Inupak people, I was able to record about a hundred words in their language for sea ice, and there were probably many more that I never learned. Right out beyond our resting polar bears here, out where that other animal is now walking and our female and her two cubs are still shambling away, the ice is fairly new. It's called young ice. It's gray color. It may or may not be safe for a person to walk on. In the Inupak language, that kind of ice is called Sikuliak Maptirok, one of the many, many terms. Now, freshwater ice is brittle. But this is saltwater ice, and it will bend before it breaks. You watch the polar bear walking out here on the ice right now, fairly close to shore. As it comes in, I see it spreading its legs, spreading its front legs and hind legs very wide because it's crossing a stretch of thin ice. The ice is sinking down underneath it. I can see a little water coming out over the ice. They do this in order to distribute their weight over a larger area so they don't go through. As this one has not gone through, now it's across to safe ice again. If the ice was even thinner, the bear would splay its legs far out to the side or to the back, and it would even lay out on its belly in order to get across that thin ice without splashing through. And sometimes, of course, they do, and water seems to be <laughs> an element that polar bears are extremely comfortable in, as our other bear out here splashing around in the open water is proving. Inupak hunters do the same thing on thin ice. They spread their legs out, the people who I hunted with and Wayne right back in the 60s showed me how to do this. Spread your legs wide, move them in a smooth, rhythmic motion. If that doesn't work and the ice is too thin for that, then you can get down on your hands and feet just as our polar bear just did on all fours. And if that's too thin, again, you can do the same thing as the bear. Lay down on your belly and scoot yourself ahead. Here's a question. Did ancestral Inupak hunters back thousands of years ago learn how to do this? by watching the polar bear? Is it possible that there's that kind of reciprocity of knowledge and teaching between humans and these animals? The bears, of course, had lived on the Arctic ice for perhaps 100,000 years, and presumably human beings came much later to this part of the world, so perhaps studying the animals began to teach them. The Inupak people also have a detailed knowledge of how polar bears hunt. These animals have perfected ways to hunt seals at all seasons and under varying conditions. Their main prey, the ringed seal. It's a small arctic seal, usually lives on or under the pack ice. The adults weigh around 120 pounds when they're full grown, so fairly small. In the middle of the winter here, when the ice closes up tight, there's no cracks, no holes, no leads, how do the seals, air-breathing mammals, manage to survive? They have to make breathing holes through the ice. They're like a vertical tunnel 
that the seal carves open with its claws, perhaps also by gnawing with its teeth. And over the top of that, there's a little kind of an ice igloo, a little dome with a hole in the top about the size of a quarter. Now, how can a bear get a seal when it lives under the ice and breathes through holes that may go down five feet or more in that great thick winter ice? Inupak elders explained to me how polar bears do it. First of all, they have to find the breathing hole, which is called alu in the Inupak language. They have to find that alu, and they do it usually by scent. Downwind, a polar bear can smell that little breathing hole, even at a distance, even when it's buried under several feet of packed snow. Well, the polar bear comes up to that hole, and it will lie down, as our female polar bear is doing right now, or it'll stand next to that little breathing hole. If that hole is not covered with any ice, it can just go right to work and hunt. Sometimes polar bears will actually excavate around the breathing hole to make the ice thinner. And they're even smart enough then when they've done that to refill their little trough around that little igloo-shaped dome, refill that with snow so that when the seal comes to breathe at its hole, it won't realize anything has changed. Then the bear will lie there or stand there hour after hour. I remember a man in Wainwright telling me how he had followed the tracks of a polar bear mile after mile, and he had seen numerous places where a polar bear had stopped, excavated around the alu, the breathing hole, and waited for a seal, but it never caught one, and he never caught up with the polar bear either. An elder named Pete Savalek, who lived in Barrow, explained to me once how he had watched a polar bear out in the middle of a big flat. He wanted to hunt that polar bear, he said, but it's out in this huge expanse of flat ice. There was no way he could get close to it because the bear would see him and run away. It stayed at that alu all night, Savalek told me. And as it did so, it would very slowly and quietly lift one foot at a time. Left front foot, put it back down again, lift its right hind foot, then put it back down. And then it would switch around one foot after the other, lift it up to get it off that cold ice, let its foot kind of warm up, and then put it gently back down again. Finally, that bear gave up, ambled off into thick ice, where Savalik, a great hunter, was able to get out in front of it and take that bear. We now have another bear coming up, a single bear, walking up to this pile of bones. Our female and her cub have gone in there and started to work away again, whittling away at the meat on these bones. Listen to him now. Here's another little altercation between the two bears. This other bear's quite big, huge shoulders, great, broad hindquarters, back, neck. Oh, what a convergence of strength here. Well, Inupak people also hunt seals at their breathing holes. The hunter will sit or stand on the downwind side of the breathing hole. Make sure that no shadow falls over it because the seal would see that when it came to breathe. Makes absolutely no noise. He may have to wait many hours in sub-zero temperatures. When the seal finally comes, if it does at all, it makes a couple of quick little sniffs. The hunter doesn't move a muscle. He waits, knowing that after the seal has tested the air to make sure there's no dangerous scent there, it'll start taking deep breaths. When it does that, he'll pick up his rifle, he'll move it over the hole, and he'll shoot. And then he'll secure the seal very quickly with a long pole that has an iron hook at the end. The same process was done in the old days using the harpoon instead of the rifle. Well, perhaps the polar bear 
also waits to hear those deep breaths. Perhaps it knows that those first sniffs are just the seal testing the air. He waits perhaps until the seal's head comes well up into the ice dome and then makes a huge swat with his paw to kill that seal and pull it out onto the ice. Here's that question again. Did ancestral Inupiaq people perfect their methods of hunting at breathing holes by watching and studying the way the polar bears do it? Well, when spring finally comes to the Arctic, the little ringed seals and their bigger cousins, the bearded seals, crawl up through cracks and holes in the ice. And there they bask and sleep in the 24-hour sunshine. At last, that hard clench of winter is loosening and they're up there on the ice. They take brief little catnaps. They stay up for hours and hours and hours, but they only sleep momentarily. And then they snap their head up, look around, then they lay their head quickly down again, always alert for danger. Inupiaq teachers explained to me how polar bears hunt for seals that sleep out in the middle of great areas of flat ice where you just can't walk up to them. The polar bear, they say, flattens itself down against the ice, stalks like a cat, moves very slowly toward that seal, stops when the seal is looking up, moves when the seal lays its head down for that little nap. The polar bears may actually extend their forearms, their front legs, out and use them like skids, like runners, and then they push themselves ahead just using their hind feet. I've seen the bears doing that right here out on this ice. The young bears especially, sometimes they just lay down, put their chest down on the ice, their forearms out in front, and push themselves along with their hind legs. The black nose of the polar bear is a flaw in their otherwise pure white camouflage. And Inupiaq elders say that the polar bear will tuck that black nose in behind its paws or even cover it with its tongue in order that the seal won't be able to see that one little indication that something is amiss out on the ice. When the bear gets close enough, it makes an explosive sprint toward that seal and kills it with a single slap of its powerful paws. Well, Inupiaq hunters stalk sleeping seals exactly the same way. They'll put a white cloth tunic over their parka so they match the color of the snow or the ice, and they crawl very slowly, very carefully toward the seal each time its head drops and the animal is sleeping. They stop when the head comes up, they wait, then they inch gradually forward again. In the old days, hunters had to wait until they were close enough so they could sprint to the seal and get it with a harpoon. Nowadays, they don't have to get that close anymore because they can shoot it with a rifle. But still, that stalking, which I learned how to do and did many times, is a long and laborious process. Here's the question again. When the ancestors of Inupiaq people first began exploring the Arctic ice many thousands of years ago, did they learn to hunt sleeping seals by watching polar bears? Of course, we're never going to know, but it's interesting to imagine that the minds and the histories of two great Arctic hunters may be woven together this way. Well, Inupiaq ancestors, studying how polar bears hunted sleeping seals, saw yet another possibility. The great hunter from Wainwright, a man named Ikak, told me this. He was crossing a big area of flat ice, and in the distance, he spotted a polar bear. Well, he said, I was wearing a dark colored parka that day and I hadn't brought along my white parka cover. So I didn't have any chance at all to sneak up on that bear. So what did he do? He lay down on the ice so that his long body was at an angle to the polar bear so that he looked like a seal. And alternately, he would raise his head, look around and drop it down again, imitating exactly the pattern of a seal basking and sleeping on the ice. And sure enough, he said, that bear started to stalk toward me. 
Ecock told me that each time he lifted his head, the bear would stop. When he dropped his head down again, he would watch and the bear moved toward him, closer and closer, thinking it was stalking a seal. Finally, when that bear came within range of Ecock's rifle, the bear's prey suddenly turned into a predator and Ecock got that polar bear. Oh my goodness, our two bears having a little bit of a face-off again, that lone bear and the female with her cub. Hear their voices. And that chuffing, that's the female with her angry or anxious sound that she makes. Well, it's a reminder as I sit here so close to these animals of how powerful and formidable the polar bear is. Hunting the polar bear, of course, seems like it would be frightening, even with a high-powered rifle. A misplaced shot and that animal is likely to charge with literally unimaginable fury. Well, Inupak hunters who taught me seemed utterly undaunted by the challenge of taking these animals. The key, they knew exactly what they were doing. Sometimes they would tell me this, when you hunt for an animal, they'd say, think about the bones and the organs inside. In other words, don't see the animal's skin, don't see its fur, don't see what's on the outside, but look beneath it. It's like you're watching an x-ray and that shows you the place to make a lethal shot. For a polar bear, they said, the neck shot is an instant kill, but you have to hit the spinal column and it's a very hard place to hit, so it can be a very dangerous shot. The shoulder, they said, that's the easiest to hit. It's not an instant kill, but if you hit correctly, it immediately knocks down the animal and then you can take the lethal shot immediately afterward. And then there's the heart shot. It can be deadly even with a very light rifle. I spoke to an old man who said they had killed a polar bear with a 222. You have to wait till the bear reaches its front leg out forward and that exposes a shot to the heart as long as you don't hit a rib. The bear hit in the heart, no matter how heavy the rifle will run. It'll sprint before it drops and that means oftentimes a sprint straight at you. So the heart shot can be a dangerous one. An Inupak man once told me a remarkable story about how he had wounded a bear and it charged him. It came on a full scale rumbling charge straight at him. And he said, I fooled that bear. I stood up and I ran straight at it. He charged back at a charging bear. Imagine knowing the animal well enough to realize that it would stop which that animal did, and it turned away. And then he was able to get in his final lethal shot. Another man told me that a bear was coming straight toward him. There was no way to get a good shot at it. What he did is he aimed along the side of the animal, and he struck it in his haunch back toward the rear, knowing that when a polar bear is hit by a bullet, it's likely to turn and bite at the wound. When it did that, it exposed its neck for a lethal shot. Well, if all else fails, and a bear is charging straight toward you, the elders say, remember this one thing. Polar bears are left-handed. So you should wait until the last second and then jump toward the bear's right side because it's a little bit slower with its right paw. Well, these few stories that I have told you about Inupak knowledge of the polar bear are just a tiny fragment of the vast encyclopedic knowledge of the natural world that is contained in the traditions of Inupak people. What this knowledge reveals above all else is that you have to be a genius to survive and to thrive here in the Arctic, especially on the perpetually frozen, moving, fracturing, crushing, 
tempestuous polar ice pack, that great continent of ice that will soon come moving in against the shore here along the Beaufort Sea coast near the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. I have suggested that ancient Inupiaq hunters maybe learned some of their ingenious hunting and survival methods from the polar bear. But as I watch these bears right now, I'm constantly aware that they're also watching me. Could it be that the crafty, intelligent, inscrutable, elusive polar bears have also watched Inupiaq hunters and learned from them? Well, however it came to be, there's a remarkable convergence in the intertwined lives of polar bears and Inupiaq Eskimo hunters. And I hope that there will always be a place for both of them to thrive as the industrial world looms ever larger here at the farthest northern edge of our Earth. Well, I think I'm going to keep on watching and being watched in turn by these polar bears here by the edge of the Beaufort Sea. For Encounters, I'm Richard Nelson. I want to thank you so much for your good company. I'll see you next time. Encounters is a production of Raven Radio, KCAW in Sitka, Alaska. The writer, host, and executive producer is Richard Nelson. Ken Fate is the engineer and producer. Theme music by Outback. Funding for Encounters provided by the Skaggs Foundation, the Kenneth Johnson Family Foundation, Jerry Tone and Martha Wyckoff, the Alaska Conservation Foundation, Robert Osborne, and the Leedy Foundation. Let's go.